The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Star High. Star was on the ground during the U.S. exit from Afghanistan. As a diplomatic security service officer, she and her team were critical in supporting the processing of special immigrant visas for Afghans and their families wishing to immigrate to the United States. This is a heartbreaking story about the limits of military power and the strength of the U.S. service member and their leaders. Please listen. So here we are with through the gray with star high again. Your experience in Afghanistan was unique. You came in, you were part of the embassy in late July. And the Taliban had started moving through Afghanistan and conquering and retaking large swaths of the territory. And so there was a big push within Afghanistan for Americans and who had worked with Americans to leave Afghanistan before it fell. Talk me through what you were doing at the embassy to support that. I got there, I landed on July 29th, and I think I departed, I think I departed actually from the airport August, evening of August 29th, which I think actually bled into the morning of the 30th and midnight of, the, of August 30th. So one of the last flights to leave. When I showed up there, my job, I was working in, it's called the Regional Security Office, and the Regional Security Office is in charge of embassy security. So everything from managing the guards outside, making sure the barriers work, doing drills for safety and, and things like that. But we have one agent that is assigned to work in the consular section reviewing for possible criminal action against people that are applying for visas or applying for U.S. passports and bringing fraudulent activities, something that can be either be prosecuted locally by the Afghan government or prosecuted back in the United States by assistant uh, U.S. attorneys. So, so that's what I was doing. So I showed up there July 29th thinking that I'm going to be there for a year doing this document investigation. However, as part of the regional security office overall, my primary function is definitely, regardless of what hat I'm wearing, is security. So we showed up there and we're all on edge watching the Taliban watching them take locations throughout the country, hearing things like we're fine unless they take the, the strategic cities, unless they take these locations or our food and fuel. And so as long as there's nothing is wrong with those supply routes and we can still get food and fuel, then we're okay. So we're hearing that everything's fine with that. So I, when I showed up there, I'm, I'm definitely not thinking that I'm just going to be there for two weeks. There are rumors like, oh, we'll be here till at least October, December, and then other people saying everything's going to blow over. Even though we're there and we're on the ground, the messages were still mixed and nobody really knew what was going to happen. And then what was the feeling in the embassy and in the country when the president of Afghanistan leaves and flees the country? That actually had a bigger impact on our local staff. 
These are our local staff that we employ, the Afghans that we employ. As I've mentioned before, the staff at an embassy is it's about four to one local staff to Americans, so a lot fewer Americans than there are local staff working in that country. So that, I remember, had a very almost black cloud when that happened because I think that they saw what, what was going to happen to their country and they saw the writing on the wall which is obviously a lot scarier for them, right? They're there. They're Afghans. There's no guarantee that they're going to get out, that we're going to get them out. And even if we did, what about all the other family members that they have there? So this is a very scary time for them. And I think that a lot of people didn't, didn't realize that because we're thinking about evacuation, right? We knew, okay, we're going to be safe, right? We're That's not our feeling. No, no one's really, it, the Americans aren't scared that they're going to die or they're going to be stuck in Afghanistan for all of eternity. But the Afghans, they really were, right? Because they see their country slowly falling apart. They see their president leave. And so that had an impact on us Americans to a point, but it really hit the local staff pretty hard. When was the decision communicated to you that the Global Response Force, the 82nd Airborne, and a detachment of Marines would be coming in to secure the Kabul airport? and that we were going to do a mass movement of personnel out. The timeline from actually remembering like when that was exactly communicated, I, I couldn't tell you that was, it was a blur. For the first week that I was there in country, there, were, there was no, nothing seemed imminent. And then that second week after I got there, things started to move a lot more quickly. So I don't remember the exact time when we found out that they were coming in or that they were going to be securing the airfield, but that was, they were there not not much before we actually evacuated the embassy because when we landed at the airport from the, uh, sorry, so to frame, to frame this correctly, in order to get to the airport from the embassy, you had to fly in helicopters. So back when I was, I did a, a TDY, temporary duty assignment in Afghanistan in 2011. And when I was there at that point, you drove in armored vehicles from the airport. You landed at the kind of commercial terminal and drove in armored vehicles, but none of that anymore wasn't safe. When we evacuated from the embassy to the airport, it was in helicopters. And as we were doing that, and again, we are the last, I was on one of the very last flights out from the embassy. The airfield at the HKIA, the Hamid Karzai International Airport there, wasn't yet secured. So they, which means that the, the 82nd and the Marines were still deploying out here at that time. And so officially that operation starts on the 13th of August, but you're right. The, the, the force flow of roughly 3000 U.S. service members and 600 um, British service members coming in is establishing that foothold at the airport. And for the next 18 days, we are processing and pushing Americans and Afghans out of country. Roughly 123,000 and 79,000 of those, I think were Americans or ones heading to the United States. Talk me through how the heck did we organize that? And then what was your role in that? Obviously, as it became, as the word gets out that we're evacuating in the sense that the Americans are the only ones that can save us got out, people started to just come directly to the airport. So you saw the photos on there of people. Again, the airfield wasn't secure at that time, so people could access the airfield. There was The Afghans had their own security, but that wasn't necessarily going to prevent anyone from accessing the airfield. So they started to come on until the 82nd secured. And so that mad rush, that, that overwhelming 
amount of people there, obviously the priority, our priority at the United States government is to, we're looking for U.S. citizens, U.S. lawful permanent residents, which are green card holders. We're looking for individuals that have special immigrant visas. So those are the Afghans that have worked for the U.S. government, as I mentioned, either in a capacity working the embassy, working for the military as translators, working for contractors, delivering food and fuel supplies. Those are all considered people that have in some way supported the U.S. government and based on priority have the right to apply for a special immigrant visa. So we're looking for those people and then other at-risk Afghans. And we're trying to, to make sure that the right people are accessing the base and the right people are getting evacuated. How do you vet those people? There's thousands of people. Everyone looks exactly the same. Nobody has this, some halo over their head saying, choose me. So this flood is coming in thousands and thousands of people at three main gates through at the airport. And as they're coming in and they're flooded, the military is in charge of keeping the, the crowd, which is turning into like a mob type scenario, in charge of keeping that and making sure that's under control and letting only a certain number of people in. And then once they get on, the our consular officers, so those are the ones that normally sit at the windows issuing visas, issuing passports, they are in charge of vetting documents. So I had a dual role there, which is, as I mentioned, I was in charge of investigating. So I had the same experience because I had to go through the same training that they did. So I can look at documents, but my primary responsibility is providing security for those consular officers. So those, those consular officers that are out there are our responsibility as diplomatic security, not the responsibility of the military, they're a responsibility of us. So we're providing security for them and also identifying, helping the military identify who, who's who, because they don't have these training on documents. So they're, everybody's out there with papers, right? Everybody's got their, they got a training certificate from the U.S. government for some course they took 15 years ago, and they think that's a golden ticket. So they're waving. And so it's a bad amount of people coming over. And so the military really can just let people in, and then they let the consular officers determine, is this somebody that is an at-risk Afghan or a U.S. citizen or, or whatnot, and then let those people in. And then if they don't, then they got to be turned around and go go out the gate. How was that for the, the people that you were able to help and the ones that you had to turn around? What was that experience like? It was, the way that, that we tried to do it was, I wouldn't, wouldn't say it was my idea, but was they didn't tell them, right? So they didn't, they looked at the documents and they determined that there or, or whatever, they had no documents that this is somebody who does not meet the criteria that, that we need to get out. And so they would just say, go right or, or go left. And going at the particular gate, it was, at, I think the North gate, it was spent time there. Go right. Okay. And they went right. That was going to get them access to the base. And they were going to end up eventually at the terminal. Going left meant they were going to go left and then they were going to be escorted back out the gate. So they didn't know, right? So they just say, oh, you go right, you go left, and they do it. And then eventually they would cycle back out and they would tell people, right? So the new people that were coming in would be told, go left, and they would lose their minds, right? Because they realize what's going to happen. They're going to, they did not make the cut or they're going to have to go back out. Um, and that's when the, the Marines and the soldiers out there had to, to make sure that everything was safe and that everybody got where they needed to go. Because you see in the videos for those initial days when the airport's not secure, that kind of, that fear and people making bad decisions. And then you were able to create some order within that chaos for a period of time. As the clock starts ticking and people know that you're not going to stay there forever and you're going to leave. Did that anxiety in the crowd and the people coming in amplify? Absolutely. Because it's, I was struck and am still struck to this day, the desperation 
I had never seen desperation like that. I never seen the kind of things that that human beings will do to one another. It was a, it was an awful sight from the beginning. But certainly in the beginning, as they're out there, the the crowd was a little bit more manageable. And again, everybody wants out. Everybody thinks that this is their you know their their last chance to to get out of the country. And they see the writing on the wall that their country is falling apart. And our job as the as a government or as the as the Department of State is to make sure that the the right people are are getting access and that we're getting the people that we need to get out. The desperation in in their eyes was it was desperation was also fear. And so the in the beginning it was much more controlled and, and people were coming on and then again the rumors start and people hear them they're going to be gone Americans are going to be gone by August 31st and that's definitely going to happen. And so they realize that or think that if we're gone, then they're never getting out. The crowd became much more of a mob. And as the, you can't, it's such a desperation that you can't explain. What would happen is that the crowds would get out of control and the military would have to close the gates or stop letting anyone on the base because the crowd was crazy. And you try to explain to them, if you'll calm down, we can let a few people in at a time. But then they calm down, they start to let a few people in. The second that you let a few people in, the everyone would start pushing and then overwhelm the not only overwhelm the crowd but become a precarious security situation for our US government our US military personnel so then they'd have to stop it so if you're trying to, to rationalize hey we'll we'll cycle through it and we'll start opening the gates we'll calm down but then the second that you open the gates the it gets madness in the crowd so that was something that towards the end was really became obstacle that the mostly the military had to overcome how do you think from the State Department side in your leadership position and also the first lieutenants, the second lieutenants, the NCOs and officers, how did how do you think they kept the soldiers focused amongst that chaos? How'd they do? I was impressed and continue to be impressed from the beginning of the evacuation to the very last day with everyone involved. And I'll start with my State Department colleagues. We train for this. You know, we go through high threat training all diplomatic security agents do but then we also go through training for this type of scenario and i had just gone through it's a training that we go through and it's good for five years and then you have to refresh so i had just gone through a one month refresher right before i went to afghanistan and the kind of culminating exercise is how to secure an embassy if the embassy is under attack or it's getting overrun so we train for this but there's no real manual. It's never going to go exactly as the practical exercise does in the training. And my the team that I work with just jumped on it and just started doing stuff that you don't really know what you have to do, but you you figure it out. And very brave individuals and the consular officers, they never, they normally check documents from behind a, a window, from behind glass. And now they're out there with there's machine guns for crowd control, there's tear gas, all these things are happening. This is not, this is something completely new to them versus we as security professionals train for it. So it was amazing to see. And then the military, I mean, soldiers, Marines, they had missed, quote unquote, missed out on the, the combat, the global war on terror. So this is their first time to get to Afghanistan to do this stuff. And they performed like when they had the Marines were out there and they had the riot gear to make sure that the people were coming and they knew what to do. And the commanders, there were a couple of a Marine major that I remember just, he's under a lot of stress and they were working 12 hours, 16 hours on their feet doing this. It's high intensity for all that time. 
It's not a, a quick mission and you go out and you come back. It's high intensity soldiers and Marines looking at their officers for guidance and their officers. You're doing the best that you can, but there's not one of their mission essential task lists is not crowd control at the Afghanistan airport. So they're doing what they do best and setting up the security that how they do best and performed exceptionally. And it's just that stark contrast. When I was into the Afghanistan 2011, 2012, we built multiple rings of facilities and outposts and checkpoints to secure the city. But when the president leaves and the military questions whether the government will support them, they melted away. And then when we put 3,000 Americans and 600 British in this outpost in the middle of nowhere, alone and afraid, it's that major, that NCO, and the leadership of people like you at the State Department that held firm for those 18 days. How did the impact of the suicide bomb impact you guys? When that happened, it was shortly before 6 p.m. And we, our shifts normally were were six to six. So we, State Department personnel that were out on the gates, diplomatic security, the consular officers worked 12, 12 hour shifts. So my shift that entire two weeks, I think had been 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. We didn't have any personnel out there at that exact moment checking documents. So for us, we were obviously very fortunate. So we were back at kind of the base camp where we were staying when that happened. And obviously there had been, there had been rumors about things were going to occur. And obviously when you have that many people in a crowd situation like that, there's always that type of threat. And it was almost unreal. And it was a re very tragic ending because so far through all this that had gone on, because we had been there for over a week, almost two weeks at that point, without without incident, certainly at least without incident to, to a member of the U.S. forces. So it was almost surreal. And there were two things that really, I guess for me, really hit me. When we had evacuated, there was a Marine sergeant, her name was Nicole Gee, and she was at the terminal where the helicopters land from the embassy. So every single individual that had evacuated from the embassy had been, had an interaction with her because she was the one in charge of saying, okay, are you going, where people went to onward, were they going back to the States? Were they going here? Were they staying? Whatever. And when we found out that went off and we're asking names, there's hundreds of soldiers and Marines there but happened to be one that we all knew because we had all seen her because she was, when we came in, she was so happy and so helpful. And we had just come out of a very stressful embassy evacuation and she couldn't have been the more perfect face to see. The second thing was they decided very soon after the suicide bombing went off and even before I think they really knew how many casualties there had been, we were sitting out there asking because even though we're there we're still at, at the mercy of other people for information and the DOD's priorities obviously not briefing the State Department on on how many you know, casualties are wounded so we're all asking for information like ask this ask that because there's some people in a better situation to, to ask the military than we were so we're slowly getting information and there's rumors this many people had died that many people had died and shortly soon after there or they realized that there were casualties they decided to do a, a ramp ceremony which is taking the so weren't really more like transfer cases and kind of body bags and doing a ceremony to put the casualties remains on the plane to be sent back to the United States. And it's usually a cordon of, in this case, Marines and soldiers 
and then a ceremony that the ambassador will attend and the commanders and on on the airfield. And when they decided to do that, the DOD didn't have enough flags. And they wanted to drape the the remains and flags. And sorry, they called over to us, the Department of State, and said, we have three flags and we need five more flags. Could you give us five more flags? So that's how we found out that there were eight people that had passed away. And then they called us hours so later and said, we have five flags. We need seven more flags. And then the third and final call that came in said, we have we have three flags. Can you give us ten flags? Um, and that was ultimately how we found out how many people had, had passed away. Sorry, yeah, that's, yeah, it was just, I think we thought as we were getting towards the end and as we were realizing that August 31st probably was going to be the the final day, we thought we were getting out there, going to get out of there unscathed. And then it realized that didn't happen. And all those service members were between the ages of 20 and 31 years old, which just seems so young. Just a very difficult thing to swallow sometimes. Absolutely. And we forget that we do some pretty cool stuff and it looks really amazing. Yeah, but hindsight. It's yeah. There's a cost. And then you can do everything right and everyone can do their job and it can still go back. Yeah, it certainly can because, like I said, the exceptional performance of everyone involved and lives are still lost. Again, thank you so much for sharing that star. And, and thank you for your role in bringing so many people home. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.